Um, last week we began to talk about what it means to be a gospel-centered parent. And uh, in doing so, uh, really talked about two kind of major headings. Is one was directly directed towards children specifically, and that's that in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, in the first two verses there, it, it speaks directly to children who would have been present in the gathering, and, and, and Paul reminds them of some ancient truths, some ancient promises that children are to obey and to honor their parents as unto the Lord, that that is a physical act of worship to Jesus by them doing what their parents have them do. And also just the respectful nature of those things as well and what it means to honor their parents. That those aren't just merely uh, checking things off of a box, but they're physically acts of worship toward the Lord. And to not do those things would be to worship something other than God because God's delightment and children is when they are being obedient to their kids in every way, uh, or obedient to their parents in every way, when they are being obedient and honoring of their parents in every way, whether those parents are present or whether they are not, that there is a responsibility in the life of our children. From there, we begin to kick in to what I'm going to continue today and then finish up and conclude next week, is that from this passage and from other principles that we see inside of the Bible, um, that we as parents, because our identity is in Christ, if you are saved, you are in Christ, then therefore we have a responsibility uh, to be gospel-centered, not only in our marriages, not only in our lives, but in the, the way in which we parent. And if you weren't here last week, it began with a huge confession. Um, I would, would say that parenting is probably one of the hardest things on the planet uh, to feel like you're ever successful at. And so we're on this journey together, and the Bible was very clear that we have hope and that we have security um, in knowing and trusting Jesus in all of these things, including parenting. And so last week, I kind of threw out one of the, the overarching truths that you need to get to be a gospel-centered parent, or the marks of a gospel-centered parent, is that, that one of those is that you, as a gospel-centered parent, should model to your children. And specifically, you should model two things. The first thing that you should model is that you should model what does it mean to pursue after Jesus in all of life. That in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul starts out that chapter by saying that we need to be imitators of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, as gospel-centered parents, you and I have a responsibility to do those very things. That we should model before our kids what it means to truly follow after Jesus. The second thing that you're to model um, is the most important relationship that, other than your relationship with Jesus inside of the home, is that you're to model a gospel-centered husband or gospel-centered marriage, that you should be a gospel-centered wife and that you should be a gospel-centered husband. And seeing the importance and the significance, um, both biblically, but also we can see throughout our society the importance and the beauty of having both a, a loving father and a loving wife inside of the same home who are pouring into the life of their children and are illustrating it because they have a deep love for one another, okay? That our kids need that and seeing the importance of that in such things as a, a chaotic home produces chaotic children, 
um, and how we need to war against that in order to be gospel-centered and not me-centered or selfish within our homes. So today, we're going to continue. I'm going to give you some more marks today. I think I've got three or so that we're going to work through today, and then I've got three or so that we're going to conclude with next week uh, of these marks of what does it mean to be a gospel-centered parent. We see here in this particular passage that Paul is going to tell us, he's going to commend the church in verse 4, if you'll read along with me. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm going to handle discipline um, because I think it needs a, a good chunk of time. I'm going to handle that a little bit more next week. I'm really going to focus today on what does it mean to really instruct our kids and come up with these marks um, that you and I should be uh, spurring one another on to achieve and to do in the life of our homes. And so we're really going to be looking at these sorts of things. So the next mark that I want to look at is what does it mean or excuse me, one of those marks would be, uh, the first mark would be the gospel-centered parent provides for their children, all right? If you're going to be a gospel-centered parent, then you need to provide for your children. And where did I get this inside of that passage? Um, it's in this phrase, but bring them up, but bring them up. The Greek word there is the word where we get the word nourishment, all right? Bring them up equals nourishment, all right? So what is for a gospel-centered parent to provide and care, provide care for their children, this means to nourish them or to feed them into maturity, all right? To feed or to nourish them into maturity. Um, I work with millennials a lot. I love college students. Um, and uh, you will quickly learn in the study of college students and the study of millennials particularly that they have a, b a really, really bad rap in a lot of ways. And I want to I I push against that a lot, or some at least. Um, there are some general things about this generation. There's no doubt about that. But there is also a lot of wealth, a lot of value, a lot of creativity, a lot in the way that they view the world and in and supporting of other people that is actually really, really beautiful. And I have to wonder, though, that if some of the issues that lie within this millennial generation um, isn't as much necessarily them as it has been the lack of nourishment from their parents, the lack of care, the lack of growth, the lack of providing care for that generation of stu students or people, we have continued to lower the bar where the Scripture is not calling you to be a worldly good parent. The Scripture is calling us, particularly those of us in Christ, to be a biblical parent. And so in that, the, the, the goal isn't to lower the bar, but it is to bring forth biblical maturity. I'm going to go more into this next week. But even mentioned this last week is that when you look into the scripture, you will not find the term adolescence. And yet we have created a culture that prolongs adolescence. Inside of Judaism, by the time that a young man was about 12 or 13 years of age, he would went to something called a bar mitzvah, right? And this was a ceremony, which I think that we should get back to, a ceremony of taking this young man and physically showing him through this ceremony that he is no longer a child, but that he is a man, and because of those manly expectations are now placed upon him, right? 
So we, if we're going to be gospel-centered, need to make sure that we are nourishing our kids, that we are feeding them into maturity, that we're caring for their physical, their, their spiritual, their emotional, their relational needs. We get from this word picture of nourishment that it carries with it um, the illustration of a nursing mother, um, but it also carries with it the entire training process of a child into adulthood. Okay, So the first thing that you need to get today, a gospel-centered parent is one who provides care for their children. Now, if you're a child in this room, what the Bible is not saying here is that the child or the parent provides for your every want. It says your every need, basic human needs, and then we attach to that because the Bible does, obviously, uh, uh, an emphasis on the spiritual needs of your life. So if you live in a house, if you have food, if you have shelter, if you have clothes upon your back, thank you, mom and dad. All right? Thank you, mom and dad. Okay? They do not owe you a phone. They do not own you a vehicle. Um, they do not owe you a large sum of money at the end of their lives in order to give to you. They owe you absolutely nothing except for what you need. Okay? What you need, not what you want. Your wants will often get you in trouble. Because you're not ready and mature enough to handle those wants. All right? Can anybody older, can you say amen? How many wants have gotten in you in trouble? All right? Wants have got me into a lot of trouble. I want a girlfriend. I want a fast car. I want this. I want that. And most of those things have always led me into great, great danger and regret. Okay? So gospel-centered parents provide care for their children. Number two this morning. We're rolling. Gospel-centered parents do not idolize their kids. Gospel-centered parents do not idolize their children. Gospel-centered parents are not child-centered. They are God-centered. All right? Gospel-centered parents are not child-centered. They are God-centered. God is the focus of their lives. Jesus is the focus of their lives. And second to that relationship should be the husband, the wife. The child comes way down the list in the great list of priorities. And it should be that way. It is biblical that way. And kids, young people, young adults still living at home, you will one day appreciate if that is the hierarchy of the home. You make a terrible God. Kids make terrible gods. And yet we see and live in a culture that is one of two things. We either have a culture of death toward children in our culture, where we're killing about 3,500 of them today through abortion, or we have a God. They, we make, make these children into gods, and both of those cultures are wrong, and they're not, they're not a gospel-centered 
Here's the deal. I love um, Pastor Vody Bauckham. If you've ever listened to him, he's got some, uh, he's hardcore um, about certain things. And uh, I, I love him. Um, it's like Paul Washer. Him and the, I've got to like take him in doses because every time I finish listening to him, I wonder if I'm a Christian or not. Um, but he, he says this specifically to young young parents, of which we have several in here. You guys like, enjoy making babies. I don't blame you. Go for it if you're married. All right. But we can easily, as soon as these children are born into our lives, that everything about our lives will revolve around those babies and those critters. And Vody Bauckham says this, never forget, that's a viper in a diaper. That is a viper in a diaper. All right, he's cute, she's cute and cuddly, but let us not forget they are a viper in a diaper and you better get it under control. Because if you do not control them, parents, they will ultimately control you. And sometimes that's not even that kid's fault. It's that you have edified where only God should be sitting and you have placed on his throne, you have removed him and you have placed the child. And so we teach our kids that the world revolves around them. Every time they cry, we're right there. Every time they need this, we're right there. Every time they want this, we're right there. We're completely controlled. Our time is completely controlled by it. Our, our talents are completely controlled by it. Our treasures are completely controlled by it. And yet we'll not see this inside of the Scripture. You need to teach our kids from a very young age that the world does not revolve around them. The re world revolves holistically around God. And that's the, the kind of macro view. That the, from the macro perspective, all of life revolves around God. In the micro perspective, your world revolves around mine. That's called gospel-centered parenting. If not, we just produce and enable these young people to grow up into to adults expecting that everything is going to be handled to them. And when some pain and real suffering comes to them, they are unable to handle it because why? Mom and daddy have always swept in to rescue every situation that I've been in. And yet that's not the calling of parents. Being controlled by your child is dangerous. Being controlled by your kid is dangerous, or finding your identity in what your kid or your kid does is extremely dangerous. Your, your child or your home becomes child-centered instead of Christ-centered. See, brothers and sisters, from the, the time they're born to the time they leave your home, they are primarily your responsibility. And most children, most teenagers, are not mature enough to make their own decisions. And so we have to learn, and I'm not saying there never comes a place, especially if you're, I think you're trying to do biblical adulthood and making that transition. There, there should, as they're getting older inside of your home, yes, you should be giving them more and more decisions, more and more decisions. But, but at the very core level of what it means to be a gospel-centered home, they should not be making those decisions. You need to be making those decisions. I need to be making those decisions for them. I think it's important for us to also, in this idolization of our children inside of the culture that we live in, 
is that we as parents need to learn to love the kid that God has blessed us with, not the one that we wish we had. You shouldn't love a future version of your child. But you love specifically the one that you have been given. In this opportunity that we have to love and to to care for our kids, we need to love them. We need to take care of them, as the Bible says. We need to model them. We need to instruct them, as we'll get to in just a moment. But in this, we need to make sure that we are loving them specifically where they are and not where you wish they would be. This can be really tough. I think specifically for dads. All right? And one of the greatest lessons that I learned um, when we found out about cash, you guys know, and I like to, I'm a weird dude. I, I am a strange unicorn of a man, all right? And, and that is this. The reason why I say that is like I, I'm an artist who likes to hunt, all right? I'm a renaissance man. I like to woodwork, and I like to hike for miles to go nowhere, um, I like to hunt fish. I like to sit in the woods and stare out a window for hours. And yet I love poetry, and I love music, and I love growing a beard. It's almost that season, all right? I love all those sorts of things. I like manly things. I, I like all of that stuff. And one of the greatest things that God had to teach me in our suffering when we found out about cash and cash being the way that he was, was Laura and I will often tell you in our story that we had to bury a child. We had to bury the concept of what we hoped that our little boy would be. All right? We had to lay that to death. We had to put that to death. And that was with weeping and gnashing of teeth in our home. That came with a lot of anger and being upset and a lot of sorrow and a lot of tears as we laid what we had once hoped for our kid to be, to embrace the one that God had given us. So if your kid isn't into sports, Dad, then guess what you are no longer into? Sports. If you got to choose between this or that, if, if God is, is, is if, man, you are hoping to, to have a dancer and you've been given a little girl with no rhythm who cannot clap on, on, on beat, but she can read the heck out of a book, you need to be more about books than you are ballerinas, Okay? In our home, we have tried almost everything that Bowling Green has to offer for Ava. All right? We just finished one, closed the curtain on cross country. Thank you, Jesus. All right? But I remember one of the first things that we tried with Ava was dancing. I really want to dance, Daddy. I really want to dance. I really want to dance. And we went and spent one of those entire Saturdays. You know what I'm talking about, parents. One of those you'll never get back. All right? And we went to the dance show up here at uh, Van Meter Auditorium, and Ava looked beautiful. No offense, she was prettier than your daughter. She was the prettiest kid up there. But we quickly noticed as all the girls were going this way and Ava's going the opposite way, dancing was not her deal. All right? She did the exact opposite of every one of those other girls did. Dancing's not her thing. 
So you got to learn to love, man, you got to learn to love the one that you're with. Right where they are, not where you'd hoped they would be. Because what happens is, is when we don't do this, then we typically become an, make an idol out of what we want. Instead of what God has given us. And God has ultimately given us himself. See, brothers and sisters, the goal here is not a D1 athlete. The goal here is, is not a diploma. The goal here is of your parenting isn't a scholarship. No, the goal of your parenting is discipleship. And those are different things. So the third thing that we're going to talk about and conclude with is this, is that a gospel-centered parents make their kids disciples of Christ. Gospel-centered parents make their kids disciples of Christ. See, gospel-centered parents are, are responsible to train and to instruct their kids in the ways of the Lord. If you don't know this, you need to get this. Every one of us in here are disciples. The question is to whom or what are we being discipled by or discipled of? Disciples of. Every person in here, you're a disciple. You're either discipling or a disciple of sin, Satan, and death, or you're a disciple of Jesus. And so you parents are discipling your kids. That's why I'm being very specific here, is that it, you're naturally going to disciple your kids. You're doing it right now, but you are called specifically in the gospel to disciple your kids in such a way in which they learn what it means to follow Jesus above everything else. That that is your responsibility. Case in point. And how many of you in here right now love a certain sport or a certain sports team because that's who your daddy liked? All right. In most cases, you like who your daddy like. I mean, I've messed with Pastor Justin now for about 12 years about how he loves North Carolina, and that's the wrong color blue. And he's from Kentucky, like Nebo, Kentucky. You ever been to Nebo? Nope. Right? Do you know where Nebo is? Nope. I've been there once. Don't ever need to go back. All right? He's from Nebo, Kentucky, but loves North Carolina and hates Kentucky. Why? Because his daddy, his daddy has discipled him to love North Carolina. All right? We'll see you come March. Who's still standing? All right? I mean, we, we naturally do this. I was sharing with Pastor Todd this week. Some of my earliest memories were with not my grandfather, my great-grandfather before kindergarten going squirrel hunting in the woods. What do I love to do? Hunt, fish, be outside. My earliest memories from men in my life were spending time with them. We are all being discipled. You are being discipled. The question parent, a gospel-centered parent, is wanting to see their disciples or their kids be disciples of Jesus. You are instructing and training your kids, whether you're doing that in an abusive way, in a passive way, in a defensive way, or in an offensive way. You are teaching and training your kids constantly. The issue is, are you teaching them what it means to follow Jesus? And that's what's really, really important. That's, that's the goal here, as again, not D1 athletes, not diplomas but disciples of Jesus.
One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture in looking at this, and I'm going to encourage you to turn with me there. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. This is found in the Old Testament. It's one of the books of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I encourage you parents to either uh, read this often or even place it into your memory because I think we get some framework here from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that really lays before us how we are to make disciples out of our kids for Christ. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, read along with me. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God command, commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by your, the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between you excuse me, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your home and your house and on your gates. See, inside of the book of Deuteronomy, it was very important inside of Jewish culture for what? For them to know and to understand the law. For them to know the word of God. That there was something about the word of God that it was, it was flowed from them. It was as sweet as honey is sweet. That they longed for it. That they dwelled upon it. And we can see here from the very beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that there is this legacy of the word of God that is being passed down from generation to generation. See, parents, you should not just be concerned that your children are being followers of Jesus, but are you leading and loving your kids and discipling them in such a way that this is going to have great influence on your grandchildren and on those grandchildren and on your grandchildren, your great, 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 great grandchildren, that all of the kids from your legacy, that they are followers of Jesus, that they know what it means, because this is the, the what we often see inside of Scripture. It's so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. Even in the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew, this is the picture that we're seeing, that this pouring over God's Word, excuse me, God's Word and how it's being radically changed inside of them and how that is leading this legacy for Christ. Parents, we need to see that. We need to see, number one, under this idea of gospel-centered parents making disciples of Christ out of their kids, is the number one thing that we need to get is that disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. 
And so right now, every person in this room, if, especially if you're in membership here, because you're saying that you belong to us, that you belong to Jesus, that we belong to each other, and so the expectations that we have are biblical expectations, and that if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus in here in this room, then I should be able to have a conversation with you, and in that conversation, you should be able to describe to me how are you discipling those within your household, and how are you making disciples of Jesus outside of your household? If you're truly a disciple of Jesus, then discipleship is not something that mere paid professionals do, right, or or super Christians do, but it is the goal and the mission of every one of us that are inside of Jesus. You do not have to beg disciples of Jesus to make disciples of Jesus. It is the natural spiritual fruit of those who believe that there's some messiness, that there's some sharpening inside of your nucleus of your home, but also outside of that home that you are pouring into someone as someone is pouring into you. The overflow of that is pouring into someone else's life. So the number one thing, if you're going to be a disciple maker for Jesus inside of your home, you need to make sure that you're making disciples yourself. Isn't it interesting that mature believers mature believers? Everyone gets healthier and better when they're around healthier and better folk. We see this in the game of basketball. Anybody who got around Michael Jordan got better. Anybody who got around or gets around LeBron James gets better. Why? Because Healthiness, maturity, ability is always lifted when you're around other people who are mature and even more mature than you are. LeBron James would never get better playing in Warren County Public Basketball League with kids. He would not get better. Likewise, for those of us who are in Christ, this, the, the natural process, the spiritual, the supernatural process, rather, is that mature believers, when they get around other mature believers, they become more mature believers. That they long for that. They de- desire for that. Now, let's break down this passage quickly. Inside of this passage, if you're writing inside of your Bible, I want you to go down to verse um, 4, or excuse me, verse 3. And you're going to mark this in verse 3 and in verse 4. Circle the word here. Here, therefore, O Israel. And then you go to verse 4. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your might. Now, if you don't know anything about early Judaism, you need to learn this. This is probably the most important prayer and statement that that kind of brings all the Old Testament, and Jesus will even use this in the New Testament in the idea of the commands, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. Inside of early Judaism, this prayer, this statement was called the Shema. The Shema. And a Jew would get up every morning and say the Shema. That before they would go to bed every night, they would say this prayer. Love the, uh, excuse me, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. What does the word Shema mean? Shema means hear. So inside of the Hebrew language here, you would see in verse 3 and also in verse 4, the first word is 
Shema. Shema. Now, what does Shema mean? Shema means to hear, to listen, to pay attention to, to focus, to respond to. It means to respect the person who is speaking and teaching and to respond in a way that they are saying to respond in. So inside the Old Testament, in Psalm chapter 27, verse 7, it says, Hear, O Lord, which actually should be Shema in the Old Testament, or in the Hebrew, Shema, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. What is the author of that Psalm saying? He's speaking to God and he's saying, Shema, listen to me, God. Hear me, God. Please re- respond in the way that I'm needing you to respond. Answer me. Work. Don't just hear me with your ears, but listen and act upon my request. Inside of the book of Exodus, we see it in chapter 19, verse 5, and you can find these all over the Old Testament. It says this in chapter 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed, this is God speaking, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So this is God speaking to the nation, speaking to his children, speaking to the chosen ones, and he says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey. And the translators put obey, which is completely fine, but in the actual Hebrew, it is the word what? Shema. What does Shema mean? means to listen, obey, respond in the way, show honor to the one who is speaking, listen to them, act. When they request something, act upon it. In this original passage in the Hebrew, it's actually, um, it, it doesn't just say Shema once, it says, if you will indeed, Shema, Shema. It's for added extra emphasis. It means listen closely. Listen closely and respond. Now, why is that important to us? And why is this important in gospel-centered parenting? Is that from a biblical perspective, the idea of listening and obeying are always two sides of the same coin. They're always knitted together. You never have one without the other. Parents, haven't you ever experienced this? How many of you guys have ever confessionally said, uh, you're talking to your kid, you're trying to instruct them in some way, and you will say things like, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? I can hear you. You're yelling at the house. I can definitely hear you. Do you, do you hear me? And, and what do the kids often do? Yes, mom, yes, daddy, I, I, I hear you. Yeah, you're hearing me, but you ain't listening to me. Right? Because what do you mean by that, parent? You're, you're meaning not only do I want you to hear the sound waves come into your ear, but I want you to listen. That means I want you to act upon what I have told you to do. That that expectation is, is, is that's often not what is found in modern parenting. 
is we'll make these statements without the high expectation that you're going to accomplish what I have asked you to accomplish. And yet, what is God saying? God says, obey, shema my voice and keep my covenant and you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. There is no separation. We see this inside the New Testament where the Bible would command us and call us to do what? To be hearers and doers of the word. See, there are lots of people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus who are great hearers. They are hearing the words. We see this inside of the New Testament. Let the, let the church hear what the Spirit is saying to them, that there's this calling to be a hearer, yes, but it is not void and separate of being a doer. The book of 1 James alludes to this um, inside of, um, I believe it's, it's chapter 1 or 2, somewhere around there in 1 John, actually, um, where it says, you know, um, those who are, um, who are truly saved uh, do not grow accustomed in, to practicing what is evil. But they don't do that. Why? Because it says that the seed of God, if I can remember correctly, is in them, in the believer. So if the seed of God is inside of the believer, they will not grow accustomed to, to the practice of evil. Those who are Christians who are practicing evil habitually, you know what you call them? Non-Christians. Because that's what the Bible calls them. All right? So we see inside of this that the most important prayer in Jewish culture and in the reflection of this use of, of Jesus' language is, is calling our kids to, to listen and to obey. Why is that important? Because isn't that what God's calling you and me to do? That the very thing that he wants us to instruct our kids to do is the very thing that God is wanting us to do as parents, is to listen and to obey. The second kind of category under what it means to, to disciple your kids is this, parents. And this is a tough one. Is that discipling your children for Jesus takes time. Discipling your children for Jesus takes time. And it takes a lot of time. I don't know about you, but I get really frustrated with God because he's taking a long time to sanctify me. That process is really slow and really frustrating. But you know what it's even more frustrating toward? How slow he's taking with my kids. All right? It seems like he's creeping in me, but man, it seems like it's creeping in in, in them as well. We, we see inside of this, this passage that it's going to take time, that we're seeing this, this growth, this nourishment, this process, if you will, of when it comes to discipling our kids for Jesus, that they are probably not going to go through, go to sleep and just awaken the next day and levitate into the living room saying, Daddy, teach me everything that you know about God. Their face is probably not going to be glowing after they've had a quiet time. If anything, you're ready to wring their necks. It takes time. Parents, how patient has God been with you? How patient is God inside of the Old Testament? 
with you. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. The next thing that we need to get is that discipling your children takes teaching. Teaching. Notice what what the Deuteronomy passage says. It says, after the Shema, you will teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and, and when you lie down and when you rise. You will teach them, teach this, teach this commandment, teach this idea of what it means to love God with all of your heart and all your soul and all of your mind. Brothers and sisters, parents inside this room, your kids, my kids, they need the Word of God. They need the Word of God more than they need everything else. They will think that their greatest want and their greatest need is something else, and they will try to manipulate you in every way possible to give it to them. And what your kid desperately needs for their heart and soul is they need within their very home the Word of God. It must be taught to them by you. And fathers, I'll go ahead and tell you, you have a major responsibility inside of this. We call this pastoring your home. Every one of our homes are small little versions of what it means to be a church. And in that, the the pastor of that home, if the father is present and still involved in that kid's life and in that wife's life, then he is the pastor of that home. This is not merely something that you have placed upon your wife, but you take care of the primary role of teaching your kids. And what do they need to learn? They need to learn the Word. But parent, if you are not in the Word, you'll not teach your kids the Word. So discipling your kids, it takes time. Discipling your kids, it takes the teaching, specifically the teaching of the Word. However, the Bible doesn't just lay it down there. That this teaching has to have arms and legs. So discipling your kids for Jesus means that that you must train them on what you have taught them. How many of us have ever practiced, you know, don't do what I do, do what I teach? That's very conflicting for kids. It's very conflicting for every one of us here. The Bible just doesn't want us to transfer information from our brains to our kids' brains, but the Bible wants us to instruct. It wants us to train our kids to take these philosophies and to illustrate them and to put them into practice. We call this hands-on learning, this idea of interaction. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way that they should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This means, brothers and sisters, this is not a guarantee that your kids will be saved, but it is, it is a general principle for us to follow. That in this training, from schooling, education, to basic mundane tasks, like brushing their teeth, laundry, making the bed, all of these things are both taught philosophically and, and through information, but they should also be trained to you practically, or trained to your kid practically. And if you're trying to teach your kid how to brush their teeth, it's what should you do? Hey, little Johnny, grab the toothpaste. Grab the toothbrush. Squeeze 
if you're like my family, squeeze. Should be rolling, but squeezing it. You can always tell whose hand grip is in it. Squeeze it out. On the t- Go in little circles, right? You don't just merely go up to the little toddler, throw in those things and say, all right, brush your teeth, right? You train that kid how to do that. You teach them why do they need to brush their teeth. And then you train them on how to do that. Okay, this can be very biblical, but it's also in just the mundane things of life. That we should be teaching our kids these things. We should be training them, instructing them, not just assuming that they know to do these things. You should be training your kids to have common courtesy. You should be training your kids to be on time. And I'm trying not to look at anyone specifically. You know why? Because being not on time is called rude. And you're training your kids to be rude. You've got to teach them the importance. Because why is being on time really important? It's not just so that you can be early, but it's showing honor and respect to the people that you're supposed to meet. Now, again, there's grace. I understand. I mean, there are wrecks that happen. You know, every time we tr- I-, I hate to be late. Okay, I was discipled by my dad in a, in, um, because he was always late. And so I vowed to never be late, so I absolutely hate to be late. Okay, And every time it seems like we're pushed, that's when Cash has an accident. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord Jesus, help me. All right? So I understand there are, there are wrecks, there are things that happen, all of that sort of thing. But as a general principle... Even down to the things of teaching your kids to look an adult in the eye. Um, in our house, um, we've been known if we go to a restaurant, is I don't order for my daughter. She's 13. She can read better than I can. All right? I'm not, I'm not ordering for you. You look at the menu, and every time I watch her when she's doing it, because if she ever starts, if the person is, if the waiter or waitress is standing up and Ava starts like drafting off, yeah, I like a chimney, I like a cheese quesadilla, and the person is over here, oh, I'm like, no, nah, nah, sorry, ma'am, we're, we're having a lapse of judgment here. Ava, you look at them in the eye. I told that to my college students a few weeks ago and had this girl in the back of the room, she goes, oh, no, I hate that. My parents used to try to do that. It's like, would well, you hate growing up in my house then? Because you should be teaching, training your kids. Again, is respect a philosophical, truthful, biblical thing? Yes, honorable thing. You have to practically teach them. They should be saying, they should be looking at adults in the eye. They should be looking at their friends in the eye. And they're going to learn that from you. But if you're staring off into space and, and can't honor and respect a person, that's, that's the physical, hands-on learning of what it means to train. Common courtesy, respect, all of these things. I will never forget, my mom worked very hard, my dad worked very hard growing up, and every so often there would be an opportunity for my mom to actually drop me off at school. 
at school. And I always thought that was the greatest blessing in the entire world. But ever since I was a very, very small kid, I will never forget the last things that my mom would say to me as I got out of the vehicle. Every time that she was able to do it, she would look at me and she would say, let's, let's give me a hug, give me a kiss. And then she would say these words. She said, now she called me bub, right? Don't anybody else, you don't have permission to do that. Special relationship between my, my mom, bub. Bub, remember your manners. Say yes, ma'am. Say no, ma'am. And be sweet to all the ladies. And she said that to me every time. Thank you. Allergies, gotta love it. Thank you, Kentucky. Beat North Carolina. We... We see this. What was my mom doing? She was training me. My mama was training me. Even so much in college, I would have, um, I, I made some guys and stuff upset at me because when they talked to me, I'd say, yes, sir. Sir, yeah, you're a dude, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And we think it's cute when these vipers in diapers try to wiggle around this. And it's not cute. When your kid is hustling and bustling to eat first, when, when these sorts of things of just rude, disrespectful things, you got to train them as unto the Lord, respect, honor. Because again, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. I don't have to be first. Hey, Ava, you don't have to be first. Hey, Ava, look them in the eye. All of these things are extremely important. All of these things carry value and, and weightiness. So in the idea of application in closing here, I'm trying to give you some handles. Some application to this idea specifically on discipleship is this. The first thing is, is fathers, you need to, again, I reiterated this earlier. Fathers, take the lead. Fathers, take the lead. Pastor your home. You should be the biblical scholar inside of your house. If your wife is the only one, who has their Bible open and is praying and is teaching the kids their word and you're actually in the home, then this is an issue and a problem. Brothers, I love you, but we see here specifically and over and over and over again, it's not that the ladies are never called to train up and teach up a child. We can even see that in the book of Proverbs where wives did that. But we see the primary responsibility of that teaching and leading is the daddy, is the dad. Now, moms, here, here's what I want to say to you. Wives, if your husband will not do this, you know what you need to do? You need to call him to a higher standard. Men often, as long as it's done respectfully, will often rise to occasion, especially if they're a wife and they're gospel-centered in that marriage. When a wife rises, uh, calls their husband to, to raise the bar and raises the standard, typically most gospel-centered men will want to rise to that occasion because it's been lifted for them. So the first thing was, if your husband will not pastor the home, you call him to that. And if he still refuses to do that, you know what you do? You pray for him, and then you do it. 
You do it. You take care of it. All the while, continuing to pray for your husband to step up. All the while, continuing to raise the bar for your husband to meet that standard which God has laid out before them. It is primarily the daddy's responsibility to pastor the home. You should be in the word the most, praying the most, leading the most, making sure that your children are acquainted to the scripture, and model uh, disciple-making mission and imitating Jesus. In 2 Timothy 1.5, though, we see this beautiful passage of ladies involved in a young man's life. In 2 Timothy 1.5, it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. This is Paul writing to Timothy. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. So mom, specifically, may you have hope today. This young man named Timothy was, was Paul's right-hand guy. He was a church planter and a passenger. It's believed that Timothy's dad was probably a Greek, maybe a pagan worshiper, not even a follower of Jesus. And yet the legacy of Timothy, a man that is mentioned in the Bible, a man whom Paul will pass on the baton of the church at Ephesus to a man named Timothy, we see where does he get that from? He get it from his mama. Gets it from his mama and his, and his grandmother. The faith that they had first is now dwelling inside of this young man named Timothy. This week I was thinking about this sermon. As I was driving down the road, I was thinking specifically uh, about my mom and how my mom discipled me. How she not only trained me to be respectful, to be on time, to make sure that I take care of different things inside of my life, that she taught me how to cook. She just didn't merely throw a recipe book at me, but she had me in the kitchen. I remember begging my, uh, in my, my situation is like I wanted to play baseball. And so um, I remember my mom getting out in the yard. That's why I still throw like a girl is because the person who taught me how to throw a baseball was my mom. I still cannot throw a baseball correctly. All right. Um, I remember saying, Mom, I really want to go fishing. I really want to go fishing. My mom get me in her vehicle and drive me to Drake's Creek, where you never eat the fish from, and letting me go fish there. I, I, I loved that time with my mom. But more important than those activities was the way in which my mom was discipling, discipling me to love Jesus. I never had the option to make up my own until I got older on whether or not I was going to church. We had it on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and we grew up charismatic, Pentecostal, holiness, everything but snakes type of church. That means we had church, that people said amen, that people were engaged. You tell them, pastor, that when the singing happened, people actually sang, and when the preaching happened, he got hot and sweaty, wiped his forehead, and everybody in the room started dancing and running and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we had some church, and it lasted forever. <laughs> All right? I mean, if you were having revival, it wasn't this Baptist three- or four-day deal. It was like seven days. And if the Spirit was still moving at seven days, it was extended. I went to a six-week revival one time. You know what Christ non-Christians call that? Hell. It's terrible hours. In Pentecostal church, you sing the same chorus until the Lord moves. <laughs> All right? Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Victory today is mine. 
I told the devil to get thee behind. Victory today is mine. And it would last four hours. And so the devil was like, white flag. <laughs> I'm done. It is definitely yours. Because I'm done. My parents taught me the Bible. That book in De- Deuteronomy says that they're the doorposts, like you get this picture of little like towelettes of like embroidery and all these sorts of things inside of the home. Put it above your doorpost. Our house was covered in scripture. You didn't go into a bathroom where people love to read and it not be a Christian book there and readily available for you. As a little kid, my, my parents, I used to have really bad dreams and uh, my mom would put the Bible underneath my pillow. And that's how I went to sleep most of the time. She was constantly talking to me about Jesus. She was constantly showing me the word. She was constantly having expectation of fellowship. And this is all before I'm a Christian. But I just, with tears running down my face as they're driving around Bowling Green, just thinking about my mom. My mom could barely sing, and barely play the piano. And because of the refusal of other people in the church and because of the lack of giftedness in the church, she got up every Sunday. And sang and played the piano. Whatever needed to be done inside that church, from cleaning toilets, my mom would have mowed the grass, she would have taught kids, She still does those things. She is dedicated to the Lord. She is dedicated to the Word of God. She is dedicated. I can't tell you how many times um, that I've walked in or we found our mama praying. And how those images have just stuck with us. I want to say something as well right here in this point to grandparents um, of non-believing adult children. To empty nestered and retired people. You may say, well, Pastor Eric, this sermon really doesn't, I've already raised my children. I want to press into that in two things. One, if you have non-believing kids, then, then older parents, you should take the reins in discipling those non-believing kids, adult kids that you have, and their kids if they're not raising them, follow Jesus. Simultaneously, if you have that much time on your hands, then you should be really taking Titus 2 very seriously where it says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be reviled. So we see here in this that, yes, daddies, you have responsibility. Mamas, you have a responsibility. But, but grandparents or empty nesters or people who have never had kids, you still have a responsibility in here from the Scripture that older men and older women are to be doing what? Making disciples of other people. Number two, I've got to go through these, the rest of these quickly. Make discipleship a priority. You've got to make discipleship a priority. 
Discipling your children takes time. Discipling your children takes teaching. Discipling your children takes training. Disciple making takes um, a leader. It takes a priority inside of your life. Jesus, spouse, church gatherings, all these sorts of things take a priority inside of your life. Your calendar and your life will revolve around the priority of Jesus. Jesus will never take a second seat to your calendar being involved in other things. You must make it a priority inside of your life. I understand if you're going on vacation, but if you're just tired or have a hangnail, then any time that the church should be open, guess where you should be? You should be there. Guess where you should be on an MC? You should be there. You are training and teaching and discipling your kids about the importance of belonging to a local church, being a member of a local church. You're teaching your kids that this is a priority. You're also setting up spiritual boundaries and physical boundaries on what we will and will not do as a family because of these certain things. Like if your kid, I don't care if he is LeBron James, if there's practice on Wednesday night, your kid should not be there. You're teaching them a priority. If it's happening on the weekend, it doesn't matter if he's Nolan Ryan, if you know who that is, you're old school, baseball player, that he shouldn't be playing on Sundays. Why? Because we're gathering on Sundays. A part of that as well is you need to start young parents. If you have little bitty kids and before they can even read and write and say, Dad, die, I would encourage you to read them the scripture. Maybe a good one to begin with is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if even as an adult, if you have not read the Jesus Storybook Bible, you should. And if you do not cry by the end of it, you do not have a soul. All right, let's keep going. The next thing is, is you need to have a plan. You've got to have a plan, parents. You've got to have a plan. You need to have, at least weekly, some sort of family discipleship time. The reality is, is that most of us cannot do this every day, but you should have a time with your family consistently, and it has a plan that is revolving around Scripture. What do you do on those other days where you don't meet? Is as you are going, you are make disciples. So as you're you know, going to eat, as you're going to ball practice, as you're going to school, you are praying, you're speaking over scripture, you're having conversations about the scripture, but there should be in your weekly plan at least one night, I would pray for more, where you're spending time together in the word. This should last like 10 minutes. I'm not asking you to teach all the systematic theology, which I am guilty of trying to do in one setting and getting frustrated with my daughter when she's not paying attention and doesn't want to know what transubstantiation is. Okay, I get it. It's a struggle. Ten minutes. And what do you do in that ten minutes? Read some scripture, sing a song, and pray. Read some scripture, sing a song, and pray. Conclusion. Man, I wish I had more time, but I don't. Let me say this. Because I know when you hear these sorts of things, you can often get into feeling guilty and shame as a parent. And let me say this to you. Can I gospel you in this moment? Parents, there are no guarantees. You cannot save your kid. I know of people who are raised in gospel-centered homes and as adults are far from God. And on the side of that, I know kids who grew up in terrible, terrible homes with terrible, terrible parents who love Jesus today. So we all got to chill out. 
God didn't stop being sovereign with your kid. We have to encourage each other to trust Jesus with our kids because they're not ultimately ours. They're his. So what are you called to? Faithful, gospel-centered parenting, trusting the Lord, believing in his sovereignty, and then letting him do what he's going to do because guess what? He's going to do that anyway. So we do not become lazy. We do not become fatalist and go, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Because God has not only planned the outcome, but he has planned the means. And who's the means? You and me. You and me. Trust the Lord with your kids. Be faithful. Be faithful. Let's pray.